Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms. Looking today at Psalm 39, and the title of our study today is Waiting in Silence. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and that that all that is in the word of God is for our good. It is for our correction. It is for our encouragement. It is for our instruction. It is for our equipping. Though we might know the Lord as he has revealed himself in the word of God, that we might trust him as he has revealed himself in the word, and that we might live only and always before the face of God and for his glory. So Lord, as we look at this challenging and even very convicting text today, I pray, Lord, that that and thank you that you, Isaiah 55, 11 says that your word will not return without void, that you will, that it will always accomplish the aim for which it goes forth. And Lord, I pray that it, this message will land on the fertile soil of our hearts, that we might know you and you, we might love you all the more, that we might see our ongoing need of you, and that we might even confess even more uh, the glory of God and that you might lead many to repentance and faith in your name, and that you might help your people to walk, as Ephesians 5, 1 says, in a manner worthy of the calling that they've received. So we thank you that your word is all-powerful, that it is truthful, that it is binding, that it is clear, that it is for all of our life and for all of our, all before your face and for your glory. So Lord, help us as we look now at Psalm 39. And we thank you that your word is true, and we know that it will accomplish all that it aims to do in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 39. Psalm 39 says this, I said, I will guard my ways that I may, may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent, and I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely... A man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. 
Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I might smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. You know, silence is hard because it's so hard if we're honest about this to hold our tongues. When someone accuses you, misrepresents you, teases you, makes fun of you, lies about you, it's almost impossible not to rise up right and set the record straight. There is a time and a way to speak the truth and defend yourself, but often we sin by getting angry and saying unkind words in return. Our words are hard to control. James 3, 2 and 7 through 8 tell us this. We all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison, James says. If you understand the potential for evil in the things that you say, you will bite your tongue and you will think very carefully about everything that you say. And now David, as we return to Psalm 39, he knows how dangerous his words can be and he bit his tongue to keep from sinning. Psalm 39 verse 1 says, I will say I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. And we need to ask the question, why is David concerned with his tongue and with his speech? We can picture the situation if we look at the rest of the psalm. Psalm 39.8, David prays, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. God laid David low to discipline him for his sins, and David lay crushed under the weight of God's punishment. Wicked people were laughing at him. And notice now that David wanted to please God even when God was punishing him. David was suffering for his sin, but he was resolved not to sin with his words. You see, when God disciplines us, we're tempted to get angry at him. We, we ask, why should I obey God when he has done this to me? Instead of trusting him, we might doubt that he loves us. We might turn our backs on him and go deeper into sin. You see, God disciplines us, though, to make us more godly. But sometimes we harden our hearts and sin even more. And yet one of the signs of real Christian maturity is that we want to please God when we suffer under his hand. Because this is faith in action. I love God through my tears. I believe that even this hard thing is is in the providence of God for my good and for his glory. That should be our heart's posture. Not to grow bitter, not to grow weary in doing good, but to repent, to continue to trust in Christ. He is enough. Now, David held his tongue to keep from sinning, and his self-control pointed forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was silent when he was surrounded by wicked men, too, even as they taunted him. Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would hold his tongue in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And when Jesus stood on trial, Pilate was amazed by his silence. Matthew 27, 12 through 14 says this, 
And when Jesus was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. No, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And the apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, 23. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And when we read that Jesus was silent during his trial, we should not sanitize and whitewash this and intellectualize this as if he was aloof and above all. You might, after all, picture Jesus like a medieval painting, calm and composed, or maybe you picture Jesus like a statue of Buddha, detached and serene with a mysterious half-smile on his face. But Jesus is fully God and fully human. His heart surged with questions and emotions, just like yours and mine does, and yet he did not sin. Christ had to bite his tongue. David was a prophet, and he speaks both for himself and for Jesus as he describes the way his emotions built up pressure like a volcano. Psalm 39, 2-3 says, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. The middle phrase is hard to translate, and our English versions handle it a variety of ways. Or the ESV, which I'm preaching from, says, I held my peace to no avail in verse 2. And this gives a good sense of what David seems to be saying. This means that his heart was still churning even though he held his tongue. He was quiet on the inside, and yet he was shouting on the outside. How did David resolve this burning fire in his heart? He turned to the Lord in prayer. He did not argue with the wicked who mocked him. He anchored his hope in the Lord and in his unchanging word, which is truthful and for our good. It is sufficient in every way and binding on our lives. And this, this anchoring of David in the scriptures points forward to the agonizing prayers of our Lord Jesus in his passion. It's also an example for you and me when we are biting our tongues, trying to not sin with our words. Spurgeon says this, It is well that the vent of his soul was Godward and not towards man. Oh, if my swelling heart must speak, Lord, let it speak with thee. We all wish that we could take back bitter, hard words from time to time, and especially our angry words. But we never should take back a prayer where we ask the Lord for his help. David's prayer in Psalm 39 is surprising. We might expect him to ask God to rise up and to defend himself. He, he does this in other Psalms. He could have endured by looking ahead to the good things God had in store for him. But in Psalm 39, David asks God to show him that he is nothing, nothing at all. And so his only hope is in God. When people are big and God is small, then it's hard to bite your tongue. And David wants us to see that people are small, but God is big. And this will settle the churning of his heart. And there are three parts to this prayer in Psalm 39 that we're going to see today. First, David asks for the perspective on his life in Psalm 39, 4 through 6. Second, he declares his faith in God in Psalm 39, 7 through 11. And finally, David asks for mercy in Psalm 39, 12-13. And David begins today, our Psalm 39, by asking God for perspective to see life the way that he should. You see, human beings are small and temporary compared to God. 
David is small. You and I are small. The wicked who seem so big are actually quite small. All humanity is small. This is the best place to start. We need this perspective. As one of my mentors said, the Christian life is all about perspective. And we are about to get a heavy, and and I mean a really heavy dose of the perspective from God's word that we should have that will really help us with our tongues. David wants us to understand first how short life really is. Psalm 39 verse 4 says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. And when David asks God to, to know how short his life is, he's not talking about learning some new information. He already knows that his life is like a vapor because he says this himself in verse 5 of this psalm. But he wants to know his life is fleeting in a deeper way. He wants truly to understand the nature of human life and take to heart that soon he will die and leave there this life behind. You see, there is a difference between knowing and knowing that you know. A, a recent college graduate might know that they'll retire someday and that the money he sets aside will compound over time but, but not many begin to save when they can. And why not? They know that, that retirement is coming intellectually, but they've not really grasped the truth. In a real sense, they don't know when they will retire. That is why so many of us start playing catch-up in our 40s when we, don't begin to, when we begin to realize that life is short. David wants to know his life is short and take it to heart, specifically with regards to guarding his tongue. And if we're all honest, we all know older Christians who have walked a mile further than us in our lives, and they've learned not to sweat the small stuff. They don't get bent out of shape uh, with words that would rile a man or a woman in, a, in their 20s or 30s. And when you see how quickly the years and decades fly by, it gives you perspective. It helps you to focus on what matters. This, by the way, is why we should be learning from those who are older. This is why Titus 2 tells us that older, that, that younger men are to seek out older men. This is why younger women are to seek out uh, older women in our local churches. This is one reason why. Because they have walked a mile further than you in life. And they know how fleeting life is. And they know how to find help practically, truthfully, and how to take that truth and apply it to life. And you know that life is fleeting in ways that no younger man or woman could. Those who are older, those who have walked further know this because this is the part of wisdom and maturity. In fact, if you're younger today, and by the way, I'm still fairly young, most people in their 50s would be shocked to learn, or their 60s might be shocked to learn, I'm 42. I'm still young. I had somebody at the post office in town said, let me hold the door for a young man. I was, I, was, I was ecstatic that he called me a young man. But if you're younger today, younger than me, this is a, uh, or even older, this is a wonderful prayer for you. Your days are measured by the wise and loving hand of God. You will not live forever on this earth. Your life is fleeting, as David says in verse 4. <coughs> you see, if you grasp this truth, you're going to be focused on the things that really matter in life. 
And you're going to number your days. You're going to think about, you know what? I might have the average male lives to about 76 years old. The average U.S. male lives to about 76 years old. That means that I have a little over, potentially, if the Lord allows, a little over 34 years left. That's, that's not many days in comparison. That means that over half of my life is already gone. That means that I need to count every day. I need every day that I get up. I need to be thankful to the Lord for the day and ask him for his help. Ask him for the help, his help, so that every day will be productive. Every day will be useful. Every day I'll grow in, in more and more in his grace and in the word of God and in, in right understanding and skill of the word. And, and in more in, in, in taking the truth and washing my wife with the word and helping her to grow and, and uh, our family to grow more in Christ. And this is what this truth does. It helps us. It helps us to take the truth that we know and to apply it to our lives. Now, David emphasizes how small we are by comparing our lives to the endless days of God. It's a humbling thing. Psalm 39, verse 5 says, Behold, you have made my days a, a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. If you travel to the West Coast, and I've lived on the West Coast my entire life, in Washington, and in California, and now in Oregon, in California, you, you might stop in the, in, the, in the National Forest to see, especially in Northern California, some of the massive trees. The sequoias are the biggest trees in the world. They're absolutely impressive. And for one thing, they've been there a long time. The oldest alive today is 3,500 years old. This means that it was already 500 years old when David wrote Psalm 39. The largest ones alive today are almost 280 feet tall, and some were undoubtedly bigger in the past. <coughs> and the wildest, uh, the whitest sequoia is around 150 feet around at ground level. The largest branch on a living sequoia has a diameter of 12.8 feet. That's not just the tree, but a branch. When tourists stop to see these giant sequoias, what do we do? We stop and we take our picture next to these humongous trees. I've done that many times. A six-foot man, which I am not, can stretch to his full height, but he still looks like a shrimp at the base of a sequoia. The oldest man or oldest woman is nothing compared to the eternal days of God. We take our vitamins, our supplements, but in spite of our best efforts, our lives are fleeting and brief, just like a spark from a, a campfire compared to the sun. A handbreadth is the width of four fingers, just about three inches. It was one of the smaller units of measure in the ancient world, but and God doesn't measure our days in miles and certainty, certainly not in light years. We are a few handbreadths away from him. And the conclusion of this humbling reflection is to realize that this life is no more solid and lasting than a shadow. Psalm 39 verse 6 says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. This is important because the world seems so solid and so meaningful. 
And one of the themes that is repeated in the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity and of vanities. All is vanity in Ecclesiastes 1-2. Some translations use the word meaningless. David uses the same word three times in Psalm 39. But our English version is translated with different words. It's translated as breath in verse 5 and 11 and for nothing in verse 6. C.S. Lewis famously called this world the Shadowlands. This world is as solid and as lasting as a soap bubble. If you don't think your life is a shadow, think about how many years it will be before your name is forgotten. Do you even remember your great-grandfather's name? How about his father or mother? Unless they are in genealogies, your great-grandchildren will probably not know your name. And the things you work hard to save up and to pass on and go on to peep other people will not be known. And this could be depressing. What is the point of my life? My life is short and so is yours. And But we, when, we're, when we're having trouble biting our tongue, we need to remember how small we are. And those who are getting under our skin are small too. And so with this perspective, I don't have to answer them. I don't have to justify myself to them. I don't have to make sure I know that I'm right. This life is not everything. It is a spark from a campfire compared to the sun. If we do not know this, we will live for this life and the urge to speak our mind will be almost unbearable. Why? Because if we don't clear up our name now, it will not happen. Our Lord Jesus looked beyond this life to the real life that was before him. He stayed silent before Pilate because he knew this world is short and fleeting. There is a new heaven and a new earth waiting for those who love God. In Psalm 37 verse 9, David said, Those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This is the perspective that we need. And now David moves from the smallness of humanity to the bigness of God. After all, we cannot control our lives, but God is the judge of all the world. The brevity of life points us to the sufficiency of God as revealed in the scriptures. And it's foolish to put our trust in ourselves or in another human being. David instead puts his trust in God. Psalm 39 verse 7 says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. The word Lord here is not the same, the name Yahweh, but could be translated as master. David is speaking to God as a servant to his Lord. David was a king, but he looked to God as a higher king. And in the ancient Near East, a king might have lesser kings under his authority. They paid tribute to him, and he was responsible by covenant to rescue them and to fight for them against their enemies. David is calling out to God as his master, the one who is responsible for his protection. And we need to ask today, is God your master? Have you bent your knee to him and become his servant through faith in Christ alone? If we know how short our lives are, that they are a mere breath, then our only hope is for God to be our master through faith in Christ. David's hope is not in anything that, that God will do or give to him. His hope is in God himself. We are shadows. God is our substance. We are created creatures, but he is the uncreated creator. He is not part of this universe. He exists by his own power and will continue to be when the farthest stores have run out of nuclear fuel. There is nothing solid in this soap bubble world we, we can hold on to. God is our only solid rock to everyone who puts their faith in Christ alone. So David now is going to turn to this God for forgiveness and mercy in Psalm 39, 8 through 11. 
which says, deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Now David's confession of sin is a theme in the last four uh, Psalms of Book 1, Psalms 38 through 41. In each of these, David waits for God to relent and rescue him from the trouble that has come on him as a punishment for sin. It seems like this is the reason these four Psalms have been placed side by side. And David, though, points forward to Christ, who made himself one with us as believers, took our sins upon himself, and became sin for us. Christ had no sin of his own for God to punish, but he was suffered for the sins of his people. Through David's suffering, we hear the voice of Christ as he suffered for us and for our sin. This is one of the major themes at the end of this first section of the Psalms that run from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. Jesus himself said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but and to give his life as a ransom for many. Psalm 39 reveals how hard it was for Christ to be silent as he carried our sin. He didn't lash out. He didn't curse the men who drove the nails in his hands. He said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He did not say to his disciples, I hope and appreciate, hope you love and appreciate what I'm doing for you. Instead, he loved us all the way to the end. He protected our hearts by biting his tongue. And David begged for God to relent. He did not try to hide his sin, but he asked God to rescue him for his sin. You see, when God disciplines a man or a woman for their sin, where else can they go? Our only hope is to run to this God whose hand is heavy on us and ask him to forgive us and to lift the weight of our sin against him by confessing our sin to the Lord. Today, you might feel the weight of God's hand on you. You may feel like God has cut you to the heart by taking away the things that you love. Psalm 39, 11 says, Like a moth, he has consumed what is dear to you. But you have a choice today. You can turn your back on God and you can get angry and bitter at him. Or you can come to him and ask him for forgiveness. You can come to him humbly as a servant like David did and say in Psalm 39, 7-8, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. And if you do, you can be sure that he'll forgive you. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. God rebuked uh, Jesus Christ for the sins of his people. This is why the scripture says in Isaiah 35 or 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. You see, if you today feel the weight of God's judgment on your sin, you need to turn to Christ today, right now. He is merciful and he will forgive you. And so David ends Psalm 39 with his third prayer, final prayer for mercy. In Psalm 39, 12 through 13, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my father's. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. When David says, look away from me in Psalm 39, 13, this means that he wants God to uh, turn his anger away and end this time of discipline. 
He wants mercy because this life is so short. As Christians, we know that this world is not our home. John 14, 26 tells us that Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. We are each a sojourner, a guest. We belong in heaven, the home of righteousness. But for now, we are strangers and aliens in this world. This is how it's always been for God's people. This is why, as Christians, when you have to bite your tongue, you need to remember that you don't belong. Your life is short. In just a few days, you're going to be going home. God is big. People are small. And if you know this, you're going to be able to answer kindly when people say all sorts of things about you. You're going to be able to hold your peace. You're going to be able to overlook offenses. And you're going to inherit a blessing because Jesus says in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In fact, 1 Peter 3.15 says that we're to be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. And that is so, so important, friends, because we are all living in a time when it's so easy, too easy, in fact, through social media and other mediums to be offended by anything and everything. But what this text challenges us to do is it challenges us to consider our perspective. As one of my mentors once said to me just out of high school, he said that the Christian life is all about your perspective. David is reminding us that the Christian life is all about our perspective. I remember another one of my mentors who's now with the Lord when, when we would have conversations about difficult people and things, and this was really an aside out of his, uh, just, just uh, something that he said just totally off the cuff. He said, you know, David, I, Dave, I sit here and I pray for people, and I have to remember to see people through the lens of Jesus, my shepherd. He's their shepherd. We, if we will learn that truth, to see people through the lens of the chief shepherd. We will be patient with people. We will be gentle with people like our Lord is. Yet that doesn't mean that we will not say difficult and challenging things to them that challenges their perceptions, that challenges sometimes their convictions with the scriptures. But it does mean that, that when, when we're falsely accused, when somebody misrepresents us, when they make fun of us, when they lie about us. It doesn't mean that we'll never say anything, but it does mean that we take it to the Lord. We take it to the Lord in prayer. We don't take it into ourselves. When they mistreat us, when they talk badly about us, our world does, we don't respond in kind. We respond with the truth that you don't know, as Martin Luther said, the half of it. You don't know the half of it. But our Lord does. See, Jesus suffered and bled and died in our place and for our sin. One of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. And certainly at the heart of this text is, is God's patience with us. He continues to discipline us because Hebrews tells us that God loves us. He disciplines those who are his own. Think of that for a minute. 
When was the last time you were patient with the person who cut you off? Chances are you weren't. You honked at them, you laid on the horn, and I have a confession to make. Even recently, I failed in this way. I had to repent. There was some guy at a gas station when I was in Seattle recently, and this guy decided in his brand new pickup that he was going to back up. Back up right towards me. He missed me maybe by a few inches. And man, I, I have to tell you, I was really upset. Here's this guy backing up. He barely avoided the right side of my, the, the front part of my car as I laid on the horn. And I really thought later that evening how silly that really was. It's just a car. If he hit the car, there was a cop, not but a few feet in front of him. It was on a video camera. He would have lost. But who am I to sit there and pull my horn and get all worked up about this? You see, if we would pause, if we would really think about the length of our days, and even think further about the fact that God knows the length of our days. And he knows the hairs on our heads. He knows the motivation of our hearts. We would be a lot more patient. I can be honest with you. I still have a lot of room to grow in this area. And, the, and I remember even one of my dear mentors telling me once, as he was saying, Dave, the Lord is teaching you patience. He said, you know what, but I'm still learning it too. I had never once seen this man get upset with somebody, speak an ill word about anybody. And he was telling me that he had room to grow in this area. No matter how old you are, we all have room to grow in patience. We all have room to grow in gentleness. We all have room to grow in these things. And we do that by confessing our sin to the Lord and trusting that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We do it by speaking up, using our voice, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to do, commands us to do, to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. Remember, gentleness is a, is a fruit of the Spirit that God, by the Holy Spirit, is working in us. He's taking the truth of Scripture and He's working it more and more into our lives. In fact, the more that we think about this, the more really that it should humble us. God knows the length of our days. He has them numbered, Scripture says. And what this should do is it should help us to remember that all of our days are in the care of God. And what that should do is that leads us to 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7, which tells us that we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then it says in verse 7 of 1 Peter 5, to cast our cares on the Lord. First, we must humble ourselves before the Lord under his mighty hand. That's hard. 
It's hard to remember when you're mistreated, when you're lied about. It's easy to rise up and defend your honor, defend the honor of others. But that's not what David does here. That's not what David instructs us to do in this text. Instead, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. That again, Paul says, the Spirit is working in us through and by the Word. I told you at the beginning of this, our time together, that this was going to be a challenging message for us. And it's challenging because in our flesh, we always want to respond We always want to set the record straight. But what we need to do is to commit that offense, that injustice, first to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. And I'm not saying that we never respond, but we need to first, rather than respond, respond with anger and and, and fury, thinking that it's righteous indignation when it's not. It's just you being a jerk. You need to take it to the Lord. Maybe you even need to take that, that concern, that issue, to a fellow brother if you're a man. Trusted brother or a trusted lady if you're a lady. And talk to them about it. Get some perspective. Proverbs says, in the abundance of wisdom there, in the abundance of counselors, there is wisdom. There's a place for this. Titus 2 says, this is why we need, why, as I mentioned earlier, we need older men. If you're a man, you need that older man in your life. Ladies, if you're younger, you need that older woman in your life for these types of situations. But the Bible also has a lot to say about overlooking offenses. And the reason that we can overlook offenses isn't because of ourselves. Because left to ourselves and left to our own flesh, we would rather respond immediately and right now. Getting our justice right now. But that's not what the Bible talks about. When it speaks on the fruit in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, about the fruits of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit is aiming to produce more and more in our lives as we are conformed, as Romans 8.28 says, more and more into the image of Christ. And this is why, friends, we, this is where it gets a little convicting, a whole lot of convicting, if we're honest. This is why we should not rely on ourselves. Because you know what? Our character really matters. It matters because in the New Testament, our character is tied to our witness. Like I was reminded this week in that gas station, in that moment, I could have let that guy go and realized there's a cop right there. These are, this, this whole complex This whole gas station is on video camera. If this guy hits my car, you know what? He's going to be responsible for it. He's going to get a ticket. 
I didn't need to, in that moment, lay on the horn. I didn't need to stare him down as I got out of my car. What I needed to do is I needed to pray. I needed to ask the Lord for his help. But instead, I didn't. And so I had to repent. But see, in all things, God even uses that. He turns it around and he uses it for his good. I can tell you that that's not what to do. But I can also tell you this is what to do. There was another situation where I instead prayed. I sought godly counsel in another situation with a difficult man at a church we were at. And the Lord used that. And I realized that I wasn't as patient and kind and gentle with this man as I should have been. I didn't communicate care and concern to this man in the way that he could understand and receive. Maybe that's you today. You know, we don't know all the things that are going on. The other thing I'll just say as we land the plane here, just for something to consider. You don't know really all that is going on in somebody who is misrepresenting you, who's accusing you, who's lying about you. You don't know until you ask them, hey, is there something that I did that upset you, that really concerned you? Instead, our response is to respond to them. It's not to dialogue. It's not to find out. It's not to dig in and and to learn to grow. And that's what I had to learn with that man in, in, in the Bible study that I led. I had to realize I needed to ask some questions. I needed to slow down and not be offended by, by what he told me and the other things that he said. I needed to find out why he was upset, why he felt that I didn't care about him. And perhaps the same is true for you. It's easy to respond in kind. It's harder to be slow to speak. And as James says, quick to listen. But that's what the Bible says. The Bible clearly tells us that we're to be quick to listen, slow to speak. I remember coming out of high school graduation, my father wrote me a letter as I graduated high school, and he gave it to me. And in that letter, he said, one of the things that I would like to see the Lord grow you in is being quick to listen and slow to speak. It's, e- it's hard to listen. It's hard to ask questions. Gentleness is not easy. It does not come to us naturally. Patience does not come to us naturally. But God does provide it to us. And these are things that God, by His Spirit, is working in us, as Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. And they're hard. They're difficult. It's difficult to be gentle with somebody who's accusing you and maligning you. It's difficult to be, to be patient with somebody who's doing those things to you. But you know what? These are the opportunities that James 1, 2-3 says to consider a pure joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. 
and endurance. This is why Hebrews 12 tells us that we are to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Notice that we're not to look to ourselves. You and I, we cannot save ourselves. We're not saved by our own merit. We're not saved by our own great behavior. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And Paul says, because we've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, in Romans 6.11, we're to, we're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That means that we ourselves are to put our sin to death. We would much rather point the finger and the log at somebody else, when, as John Flavel says, we should decry, we should decry our own sin first, before we decry a thousand in somebody else. And that's a not only sobering thing for us, but it's also a true thing, because as we go back to Psalm thirty-nine, what we what we discover is. It's that we can't do this by ourselves. We need the help of God. We need the help of his grace. And without both, guess what? We will not bite our tongue. We will not be patient. We will not be kind. We will not be self-controlled. Instead, we'll flame everybody out. We'll drop those mic drops. We'll lay those bombs. The people will be flamed all over. And they'll be damage and devastation everywhere. And isn't that what we see in our day? And that's why we need a text like this. That's why we need the Spirit to take the word that we hear in our lives and we need Him to take it and to bring conviction to our hearts. I can tell you as I've worked on this sermon, I've been convicted. Maybe that's true for you. And you need to understand that conviction is a gift of God's grace to you. It's a kindness to you. It's God, by his grace, showing you through his word. These are things that you need to continue to work on. These are things, these are areas where you aren't lining up to the word. Our lives are to not just, our lives are to match up to the word. Our lives are to line with the word. And where they don't, the spirit uses the word to bring conviction to our lives. And that's a kindness because he takes the word that we hear and that we study and he takes it and drive it, drives it further home into our hearts so that we might further be conformed more and more to the image of our Lord, who when he was tempted, he did not revile, he did not respond in kind. He was sinless in every way, and because he is sinless, we can trust him in every way. And because he's even sinless, he can sympathize with us in our weakness when we respond with a lack of self-control and patience and gentleness. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for Hebrews 4.16. That we can draw near, as the author of Hebrews says there in Hebrews 4.16, we can draw near with confidence and receive mercy and find help in time of need because of the finished and sufficient work of Christ 
the King of Christ, our priest of Christ, our mediator of Christ, our intercessor of Christ, our advocate. We cry out the, with with First John with the true the words of First John one nine. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So Lord, please pardon us and wash us anew on account of the righteousness of Christ, our Savior, our High Priest, our King. We thank you, Lord, for the righteousness of Christ, without which there is no hope, without which there is no life, and which without which there is no hope of eternal life. And so, Lord, we thank you for Christ. Lord, help us by your grace, through your word, to, and by your spirit, help us to bite our tongue, help us to display the fruits of the spirit more and more. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.